Welcome to Politics, Politics and Bros. I gotta start over. Holy <laughs> already. Ugh. Welcome to Politics and Bros. This is the podcast where two guys who spent their careers on the inside of federal politics and government are now on the outside and only have each other to talk about how things are going. Today is May 25th, 2021, and this is episode 39. I'm your co-host, Pete, and with me as always is my good friend, Howell. Howell, how you doing, buddy? Hey, Pete. Um, you drinking? I, I am, and uh, I'm also distracted. Uh, I'm sitting here watching... I've got a d- dual screen thing going tonight, so I'm I'm watching the Predators uh, in the playoffs. So don't don't mind game, me don't if I let out a a gleeful squeal or a a groan as we're recording tonight. But I figure you've you've uh, played poker enough during our our podcast that I'm allowed this one discretion here. Oh, you're playing tonight, right now. <laughs> lovely, lovely. So um, I'll be I'll be I'll be have monitoring this as well, but. It was uh, lovely to see you this weekend. It was good to see you too, buddy. It was, uh, yeah, we went, my, both of our kids had soccer games at the same, uh, same high school. Uh, Serendipitously. And, uh, my son scored his first goal ever. And when I told Howell about that, this is for our listeners, uh, I, he was like, well, that's great. My son, my son scored four today. That's a very thing to say. I didn't say it so flippantly, but... <laughs> I will say, you said, what is your son and daughter, the best players on their team? And who walked by and said, yep. Another father goes, yes, yes. No, are. that was the coach. <laughs> oh, that was the coach. Yes. <laughs> I didn't know. So I, I didn't say it, folks. It's it's uh, the words of the coach. So um, Too funny. But yeah. Well, I want to... Um... I want to get on into this. I want to introduce, we have a guest tonight, and I'm so happy about it. Um, a long, long time friend, one of the first uh, people I met in the first my first year in D.C. Uh, we both worked for the great Senator John McCain as staff assistants answering phones. And the joke is that, uh, as I said earlier before we got on, is that uh, I was promoted first, but she ended up becoming chief of staff. So <laughs> welcome to the podcast, my good friend, Becky Talent. Hi, Becky. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Yay! And yay! <laughs> Thank you for joining us. I feel like us. fit right in because I have the Nationals game on, like right to my left here, watching mm-hmm. bottom of the bottom of the ninth. Nats are down by two. Soto's at the plate, so we're all we're all half here. Are you a Nationals fan? <laughs> are you a Nationals fan? Huge. Oh, huge well, Nationals fan. I am too. Huge I adopted Nationals the Nationals really? in 2005 when they came to uh, DC, and yeah, watched all of the playoffs in 2019. What a what a run that was. Um, yeah, we yeah. Uh, we were lucky enough to get to go to all the playoff games that were in DC that year. And I was I grew up in Arizona, as Peter mentioned, uh, worked for John McCain. So Arizona sports fans struggle, and the struggle mm-hmm. is real. And when I was in high school, the Diamondbacks landed in Arizona, but it was you know by that point I was getting ready to go to college. I kind of missed that boat. Like obviously I was in on the 2001 World Series, but it wasn't yeah. something I really followed. And then. Cardinals, rough. Um, they had a run <laughs> a few years ago, but generally, we Arizonans transplant someplace, transplant someplace else, and end up adopting our teams. And I was an Air Force brat, and so I've been in DC longer than I've been anywhere yeah. else. So I feel like it's time for me to like accept and adopt 
the DC sports teams. So I have definitely, well, definitely done that. I feel like Nationals fans are pretty passionate and it's like, it's kind of like a lot of people like you, like people come from all over and they, they may not have, co- they may have come from a town that didn't have like a baseball team. And so they're happy to just have a baseball team. And it's such a good experience. And I will say that one of my favorite sporting event memories was the first time they went to the playoffs, I think in 2012, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was at the game. Jason Worth hit the walk-off home run against oh, um, man. Uh, against the Cardinals in game four. I couldn't tell you who the pitcher was, but yeah. yes. Uh, I think, yeah, yeah, I remember the game. Lance yeah. Lynn, maybe? I don't know. But um, And... The ball was coming right. Oh my God. I just, I get, I still sometimes go back and watch that replay because it was such a great moment for, for DC yeah. sports and baseball. So anyway, we could probably nerd out on this for a long time, but let's, I mean, let's, let's do a whole podcast about <laughs> yes. baseball, but yeah, no, we'll start okay. a new podcast. Becky, we'll, I'll talk to you after this. We'll start a new. Okay, so, do you guys, do you guys want some time alone? I mean, Jesus. Okay. Sure All right. Break, sorry, but far, sorry that, for that. But. Yeah. Well, I was going to say too how that uh, Becky's husband Aaron is a uh, I don't know if that's it's not really his career, but he's a sports journalist. I mean, he writes uh, what's the website? I forget what it is. So he writes for Athlon Sports. Mm. Aaron Town, look him up. Um, he does mostly historical pieces, so he yeah. does a lot of things like listicles and long form historical pieces. So he doesn't he doesn't cover games like he doesn't sit right, and right. cover games. But he does a ton of SEC football if that's mm-hmm. what you're into and. Um, yeah, it's not. He does otherwise. He does freelance writing, a ton of freelance writing, but that kind of is the thing that he enjoys the most. And does yeah, look him up. Talent with two L's. <laughs> See, I got that plug in. That's my plug on your podcast. <laughs> hashtag hashtag coming up. Hashtag I, I, I went to Vandy, so uh, I kind of am, am into SEC football. I'm mostly into getting beat in SEC football. So yes. um, oh, that's funny. So it's Peter. So <laughs> whoa. <laughs> Ouch. Okay. Um, this this podcast took a turn. Steer us back on the course, Pete. I'm just going to go ahead. And yeah, sorry. The, that's, uh... that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about more depressing. Things. Yes, right. more depressing things. <laughs> we do always well, end up gonna... sad in this podcast. <laughs> Well, we brought Becky in because we were going to, our big subject today, and this is something that I've wanted to talk about for a while, is uh, immigration and immigration policy, immigration reform. But uh, we'll get into that in a minute. We'll we'll start with a little bit of news and, and what's been happening, get the perspective as, you know, since Becky spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill in multiple capacities, you know, with McCain and also Speaker Boehner and also on the House side with, or, you know, well, Speaker Boehner was on the House side, but uh, in the Arizona delegation on the House side as well. So I'm sure January 6th. We know we had the commission House vote uh, last week. Only 35 Republicans voted in favor. I'm a little disappointed. Um, and I guess my big question, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this to you first, Becky. I want to know what you think. Uh, what is the Republican leadership afraid of? Considering uh, it seems like uh, CatCo got screwed over, the, uh, the, re- the Republican congressman from New York who negotiated the whole thing, and then McCarthy bailed on him. But I don't know if you have thoughts. So um, I worked quite a, so when I worked for Boehner, I spent a lot of time with John Kako, and I think he's like a, he's an incredibly serious legislator. He's in a, at the time when I was working with him, he was in D plus five district, which means that he was getting elected against the grain over and over again. And so he really needed to be a middle of the road, moderate, thoughtful member of Congress. He really focused on things like, you know, uh, Homeland Security, cybersecurity specifically, but also help found the um, 
the Problem Solvers Caucus and, you know, at the time worked with folks like Martha McSally and Will Hurd and these members that were really trying to find this kind of middle way. Um, I think I think the better question right now about not whether or not, I, I think there are a couple of questions here. Why are we picking members of, like, why are we throwing certain members of Congress under the bus? And I would throw that are trying to do serious things in serious times. And I'd put Kako there. I put Liz Cheney there mm-hmm. um, that like consistently we're choosing, we're, we're choosing against them. I think, um, you know, finally McCarthy and Scalise came out with statements today against Marjorie Taylor Greene, but like yeah. how often have we had to have her say something outrageous or totally inappropriate before they were willing to say something. And I think the real question is, what I keep thinking back on is, and I worked for Paul Ryan very briefly, very, very briefly after my time with Boehner. And like, I, I constantly think back on what would John Boehner or Paul Ryan have said in similar situations. And I think, I think I know, um, and I don't, and it's hard to say because these are such unique times and I don't want to judge. I don't want to overly judge the current Republican leadership over the choices that they've made, because I know, again, these are incredibly unique times. There's no roadmap for this, but I look at the members that I, that I worked closely with and I considered thoughtful and I considered serious and I considered smart. And I look where leadership is lining up in relation to like national politics and where their opinions are. And I struggle with that. And I, and I struggle with that as a Republican. I'm still a registered Republican. Um, I feel strongly that, you know, you stick with the party, you try to fix it from within. Um, and I'm trying to continue to do that. Um, but it continues to get to get harder and harder, especially as these, as the leadership of our party continues to turn a blind eye on some very incredibly racially tinged politics. And yeah. Uh, yeah, a priority said too much, but there's there's a lot going on there, and I and I miss. I guess I should. That's a long way of saying that I I do think that if we had the opportunity to bring back some of the leaders of old, which of course I would include our old boss Peter and and mm. what he would how horrified he would be in yeah. the and what was happening today. Um, you know, I read today that there are a lot of Republicans who are not just fearing for their political lives, but fearing for their actual lives and safety and that of their family in the Mm, post-Trump era. And as somebody, I mean, not to talk about immigration too early, but when I went back to work for Boehner's office and it made a lot of news that I went to work for Boehner because I was, you know, McCain's former immigration person, um, I was getting death threats. I had to call my family and tell them that they should stop answering their phones. I was, uh, Mm. you know, I was, uh, my, you know, our addresses were put online. It was, it was terrible. And so I can understand now four or five years later why people would feel that way. And I don't, I don't, you know, if you're worried about the safety of your family, that's, that's something I, I can't question that, but yeah. it just, it just speaks much. It speaks so much to the awful times that we're living in our political world right now, that this is so encompassing of so many people and people feel so passionately about this in a, not healthy way that it just spins into policies that don't work. And I'm sorry, I've gone off track with your original no. question. And no, it's Jason, good. You know, but, but there's so much going on here that speaks to a larger dynamic in the country today that I, I am personally really struggling with. And I'm sure that there are other people who are similarly situated 
as what you know this <laughs> i feel like the silent majority is now the moderates but maybe the moderates um mm-hmm. who are struggling to figure this out too yeah yeah well and then it also begs a question because you know george will went on and said that that january 6th has to be ingrained in everybody's mind the way that 9-11 is and of course that comparison is gets awkward very quickly at least in my mind and i don't know if that's the right approach to take because i feel like it inflames uh the you know the insurrectionist side a little bit more and i don't know I, I, there's no there's no moderation of this thing and and or there's no perspective i guess is my point and especially when you start comparing it to 911 and or making that attempt so it's it's it makes it more rough i i think i, I will say it i'm sorry oh sorry no Go ahead. um i i think just practically speaking we probably don't really need a january 6th commission <laughs> like it was all on videotape. Like we kind of know what happened and um, you saw the events of the day unfold. Um, And yeah, it's not going to look good for Republicans. um, What comes out of that day, you know, maybe there would be some things like McCarthy would have to testify and we'd find out what happened in that conversation with Trump. Um, Maybe there would be some other um, nuggets like uh, representatives were get you know, which representatives may have been in contact with some of the, the um, <clears throat> rioters, but ultimately like that probably isn't going to change that much. What really disappoints me. And I think I texted this to you, Pete, um, after uh, this week was, you know, they're kind of just saying the Republican leadership is kind of just saying, this could be bad for us in helping us and in, in helping us try to win back the house in 2022. And for that reason alone, we should not pursue it. Um, and to me, that is putting party over country all the time. And, and you, you know, Pete, you guys are both come from the political, more political side of this. And so you understand kind of how these, uh, these things work and maybe the motivations behind them. But to me, that never will justify kind of an action. Like the, they, they, these people are elected to um, uh, do what's best for the country. Uh, and maybe moving forward is, a gener- is actually best for the country. Um, but you sh- your excuse should not be politics first. Yeah. Sorry, you might have to jump in here. No. I will say that I do, I do think that, I don't disagree with the fact that like, this commission would turn into a political circus. Like, right. I, do I really think that this commission is going to move forward and we're going to suddenly get all these answers that we didn't want and the country is going to be healed? Absolutely right. not. Like they're, they're right. I mean, I understand that the commission is, I was looking at this the other day, the commission's made up of, I understand you can't have elected officials. Do you know how many former members of Congress <laughs> would be appointed to this commission? <laughs> it would be all yeah. former members of Congress. And it would just, and, and again, it's not like they don't have a political affiliation. So I don't, I don't, I think that, I think that Katko and the 35 Republicans did vote in favor of this bill or put this bill together in the idea that we would, that, that they, for the good of the Republican party needed to put some oomph behind moving forward and being thoughtful about this day and being introspective and all of those things. Now, taking all that aside, if six months from now we had this commission up and running do I, again, do I think that we would have this national healing? Do I think we'd learn anything? No. Do I think that this would just further inflame the partisanship in their country? 100% yes. Yeah. If we if we could do this in a way that like 
you know, take it out of Congress, take it out of, you know, maybe, you know, the congressional leadership doesn't appoint them. Maybe it's, maybe it's academia, which we can all talk about bias in academia or whatever it is. If we could make this a truly independent commission, is this something that I feel like we could really like boil down? How did people get information and who told what and what role did the, you know, military or capital police or whatever play in all of this that i think would be actually really helpful because there's so much confusion and so much conversation around that day but i don't necessarily so i guess i believe in the concept of doing a commission i'm not necessarily endorsing what it is yeah. that pelosi or the members of congress before you're you're 100 right that i mean pelosi and them and the democrats would use this as a cudgel to just just rail against the the GOP and probably for good reason because I think they kind of it would come out that this is probably you know was a, at least at the very least sort of abetted um uh probably maybe not intentionally but abetted unintentionally by some actions of the GOP um and so they just so happen to have maybe that I, I guess my point is you just because the truth is bad politically doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue it. Um, and so I agree. I, I agree with that. I just, I guess my question is like, how much of truth are we going to get at and how much uh, sensationalism are we going to continue? Well, like, yeah. And it would fire? be spun. Yeah. I, I agree. Um, so I don't know, Pete, you haven't said anything. No, I, I think I told, I mean, <laughs> on, for, on its face, I would, I think it's, because I'm I'm in that mode where I want the I want the Republican Party to be to be cleansed at some point to come to be able to come out of the the, the forest or to come out of the wilderness. The is. And I keep, there you go. Wilderness. I mean, I want that to happen sooner than later because I do believe that having you know a two a proper working probably working two party system is the best thing that we can have for our country at least at the moment, and that's not happening right now. Mm-hmm. But I do absolutely agree with you guys that you know not a whole lot more is going to come out of this that we don't already know. It will only further inflame the whole dialogue. Um, it's not like people are going to magically, you know, have a kumbaya moment and love each other once again, that we're not, we're nowhere near there. I, I think it's just kind of, I'm in that mode where I'm sort of like, I just wish that we were close to that. Um, I just, I, for me, I, I don't like, if if the Democrats were to drop this, I don't think that like magically the GOP is going to be like, oh, well, you dropped this. We're going to start, you know, negotiating on other things like, no, right. I think this is all just a I mean, this the GOP is like, we got to hold our line. And if they give us an inch, we'll push forward on that line. And like, I don't see any. And I actually want to talk about this when we get to immigration as well about, you know, what are true negotiations and you all may have some insight into that. What do they look like? How, how can we as um, just common citizens know what is a true negotiation going on versus um, more just uh, angling and positioning for to message that, you know, you fought this battle so that you can take it back to your district and, and say, you know, we pushed hard for this, but they wouldn't give an inch, you know, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, we can get to that um, when we talk about immigration, because I understand there's a lot of negotiation that has gone on both currently and in the past. Well, maybe not currently, but in the past for sure on immigration. So. 
Those are uh, how's your well, hand, we, how's your we'll, hand we'll going there? <laughs> oh, it's going great. Um, I'm about to. Pete's playing poker something. again. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, it's my Tuesday night game. I can't help it. I can't. I can't ever say no to these guys when I because I set the game up. But anyway, um, we'll let that. We'll lay that one. Lay that one down now. I, I, don't, I don't know how. Did you want to touch on any Israel update and what's going on now that we're in a ceasefire? Uh, you have, you always have opinions on this. Yeah. You know, I think my biggest opinion from this latest inflammation is that social media is terrible. And, <laughs> and <laughs> you know, I, peep the, the, it's just such a terrible way to make any sort of statement about this extremely complicated situation. Um, yeah. I mean, was Israel disproportionately killing? Palestinians and kids were dying. Sure. But people have to remember Hamas was literally committing terrorist acts every day because firing rockets indiscriminately into a country is a terror, an act of terror. Um, it's, and so like, it's just such a complicated layered situation that putting, you know, the Palestinian flag as your background, um, on Instagram, this helps nobody. Um, and like, you know, do you realize that, um, Hamas is doing this to, uh, basically increase their power and their influence within Gaza and, and the West bank and Abbas, who's about the only hope of negotiation, negotiating in with the Palestinian authority, he won't even hold elections because Hamas is so powerful right now. They would win elections. And then it would yeah. be even a worse situation. Um, meanwhile, Netanyahu is using this situation to because um, he's uh, Israel's had four elections in the last uh, two years because nobody can win a coalition there. Netanyahu is trying to hold on to power because he is if he loses his prime minister position, he'll be tried um, for corruption. So this is great for him too. So he doesn't really have any. Um, he doesn't really have any incentive to lay off uh, Hamas. But then Americans, you know, posting um, anti-Zionist, aka anti-Semitic um, mm-hmm. tropes. And, you know, I think I saw where the hashtag Hitler was right was trending um, on, on oh, Twitter. Jesus. I haven't seen that one. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's just, you know... I think there were a lot of factors at play. It had been seven years since something had broken out, which is like the longest it's gone in a long time. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of just due, honestly. Um, the, the thing that I always gets me is that, you know, I, I don't know if you guys saw like the GOP jumping in and being like, president Biden needs to do something right now. I'm like, what, you know what, what are, what is he really going to do other than say, you know, it's not our country, right? He can say, all he can do is express to Netanyahu, like, look, we want you to try to resolve this as soon as possible. You know, we, you have a right to defend yourself. Um, I think people just have a unrealistic expectation about, um, what an appropriate role for us to play here is and um 
I, I think we need to be more critical of both sides, right? And, and, you know, Israel has the power to change the dynamic there. If they would stop building settlements, it would really help to, to, um, uh, diffuse the situation. I think I told you this, Peter, like when I, when I got to Israel, I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to drive around and there's going to be like houses everywhere and it's going to be, um, just jam packed with people, but no, they have like tons of farmland and, and beautiful area in the Golan, um, that, that people, they don't need to be building in the West bank, but at the same time, like, Hey, you know, Palestinians, like maybe don't fire rockets indiscriminately at kids and, and, and kidnap, um, young Israelis and kill them. Uh, you know, like I recognize all Palestinians are not Hamas, but like, you know, there's, there's plenty of blame to go around. And, you know, I think nothing, unfortunately is really going to change, um, at this moment in time. I think we're just happy that there is a ceasefire at the moment. Um, And because I think it's affected us. You've seen Jews getting beat up in the streets in America um, because it's such a hyper partisan or politicized event. Uh, And I feel that a lot of people posting on social media support for Palestine gives them cover to act like this. And yeah, yeah. uh, the only thing I'd add into there is I also think that there's like a generational gap here on understanding the dynamics in the Middle East and some of the historical dynamics between Israel and the historically Muslim countries and the U.S.'s allyship with Israel and why that's so important to our positioning in the Middle East. And again, like how that is also tied to historically anti-Semitic statements. And so I think, you know, I, I, I do think that there, well, I think that there's a generational, I think there are maybe, maybe some shifting opinions within the U.S. on where the U.S. should be situated. I do think that there is maybe a lack of appreciation of maybe some of the last 20, 40, 50 years on where, you know, from some of the younger, from some younger Americans on where, on how, the U.S. has situated itself in the Middle East. And I think we need to be really careful of understanding the importance of the Israeli allyship. Um, and if you indulge me a second, I'll tell you a really funny Netanyahu story. That um... Oh, yes, please. Let's break <laughs> so, some news here. I, uh, I traveled to... Um, so I was on a congressional delegation trip to um, Jerusalem a few years ago. And I got really sick, like horribly ill. And we were supposed, the rest of the delegation flew to somewhere else, which I'm fairly not supposed to disclose. And I stayed back at the hotel because I couldn't even get on the choppers to go to wherever we were going. And I emailed our military, our Marine liaison. And I said, I'm really sick. I'm so sorry. I'll meet you guys tonight. But like, I'm so sick. I can't even get out of bed. Like horrible cold bronchitis, whatever. So later that day, I wake up and I'm like feeling terrible that I've eaten. And then we have this like ready room where we keep all of the, they always have a room for members of Congress when they travel. So they don't make themselves like, so that they have a place to like have drinks and they're not out in public and they can like keep their personal stuff and whatever outside of their room, you know, and they always have computers that we generally never use, but it's like a room for us to like relax, like a lounge. 
And so I go down there. So I'm like, I just need water and juice. I'm feeling terrible. And I go down and there's like a cart that's kind of situated in front of the door, but kind of not. I couldn't really tell. And so I have a key to it and I'm trying to open it, trying to open it. And suddenly this guy like bursts out like a black t-shirt and khakis with like all this stuff in his hands and looks at me and then like literally like runs past. And I was like, well, that's weird. Cause it looked like, it looked like all the trash out of the garbage cans that were in there. And then like some hard drives out of computers. And so I go in, I go in and the manager of the hotel is standing there and she's like, Oh, Oh, uh, you're here. You're here. Um, uh, you must've been the one that was sick, which I was like, <laughs> Nobody knows that I was sick, except that I dropped it into that one email that I sent to this very specific person. So you wouldn't know this unless you're reading our emails, but cool. <laughs> so I go and I get like juice and water and whatever. I go back to my room. And of course, as soon as everybody gets back at the hotel, I was like, you would not believe that I just busted in on people like, like spying on us and copying all of our stuff, which we all knew was going to happen as soon as you got like, that's, you know, mutual. Like we all do this to each other, right? Like everybody's spying on everybody. And, um, but I totally busted them, like un unplanned, busted in um, on them, like copying all of our hard drives and all that. So that day we're meeting with Netanyahu just because he meets, because it's genius on his part, like political genius. Every member of Congress, no matter how senior, no matter how senior, whatever they're doing, he meets with them, which is so smart because when they come through Israel, because he's building like allyship one at a time, like slow game, right? So we sit down at a table and they're like, you know, five members, six, seven members of Congress and like that many staffers. And he starts saying them, I don't remember what we're talking about, but he, like it ends with like, and we do not spy on Americans. We do not spy. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, thou dost protest too much, sir. <laughs> like we like, clearly like had trailed back up through the thread that like we had like walked in on them copying our computer hard drives and stealing our trash. And again, we knew that, like, that's part of the deal. Like we all prepare for it. Like you go to Israel, we know they're going to spy on us. And he just was like, went on and on and on for way too long about how they don't spy on Americans in Israel. <laughs> that's when like, yeah. And then I have a picture of us like shaking hands. <laughs> He's not spying. You're like, we can I introduce you Americans. to Jonathan Pollard? Yeah. It was just, it was hilarious. It was hilarious because it was like way overcorrect. <laughs> Too much overcorrect. Oh my God. Yeah. That's Guilty why they conference. gave Jonathan Pollard a, a national hero's welcome when he came home. Right. They do not right. spy on Americans. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, anyway. Well, we'll see if uh, Blinken's there now to try and like secure the peace. So hopefully he can do that. I'm not confident. Um, <laughs> We'll move, moving on now. Let's get to our topic of the day. I was going to mention the Wuhan lab stuff, but that's just that's just too much. My head might explode. Um, so the reason why Becky is here is for immigration. There's only one person I think of when I think of immigration policy, and it is it is you, Becky, because um, you are the authority. Even though that's not really your not necessarily your life anymore, you've always maintained your interest, and um, it's just it's something that's always fascinated me, of course, because I remember, you know, years and years ago when McCain Kennedy was happening and I was working for Jim DeMint and he was part of that coalition of conservatives that was trying to stop that bill dead in its tracks. And I did not cover immigration policy for, for Jim DeMint at the time, but I remember he was going back to South Carolina and I drove him to the airport and um, and he knows my my background, you know, the son of an immigrant and grandson of immigrants and 
he asked and said, where, he was like, Peter, where's your, where's your dad falling this? And I literally told him to his face that my dad, I said, Senator, my dad thinks you are an idiot and thinks <laughs> you are totally wrong. My father owns a restaurant. He employs a lot of illegal immigrants who work their asses off to try and do the right thing for themselves and, the fa- and their families. And I just kind of went off on him and he looked at me like, who is this kid? Um, but I still totally maintain that and agree with, with what I did that day. And he didn't fire me. So clearly it didn't bother him too much, but anyway, I, my big question and, I, and Becky, you can kick this off is we've been dealing with these issues at the border and you're from Arizona. You've toured the border. You spent time with border patrol. You've done all these things that only people hear about in the news and sort of the abstract, but how, how, how do we get here? And, and I'm talking about starting from when things looked really good under president Bush to get some sort of, some sort of immigration plan or reform done only to have it collapse only to have it kind of reignited with then Senator Obama, but then it collapsed again and then nothing happening really during his presidency, you know, then all the shit hitting the fan during Trump's presidency. And now things are still hitting shit is still hitting the fan. But of course, Biden gets the benefit of the doubt because he's not Trump. So, yeah, that's, you know, that's a really complicated question. I'll give you some time to continue to play your poker game while I answer it. But (laughs) I think, I think, so if you look at the 2005 and 2006 debate, um, Gosh. So if you, if folks remember, this seems like, I mean, honestly, this is terrible. It's 20 years ago, but um, in 2001, Bush and then President Fox from Mexico came together and they came to the U.S. and they said, we're going to get immigration reform done. Like they just done, they'd done the 86 amnesty. They did a 96 rehab of the immigration bills that was like much harder on enforcement and things like that. And then they said, 2001, we're going to deal with you know, we have this like 12 million people who are here undocumented. We're going to figure this out. And that was like days, weeks, if not days before September 11th. And then September 11th happened and the whole playbook got thrown out the window. Yeah. And that really stalled everything until, you know, five, six years later. And then you saw some kind of effort on immigration reform coming from, you know, originally it was a partisan issue. You know, you had Colby Flake McCain, which is like the Republican proposal, which is, Funny because in a way, because it was the first comprehensive proposal that had been introduced in a long time and it came from Republicans, which then sent the Democrats into a tizzy because they hadn't been able to figure out like where they were going to land on this. And then they introduced the Kennedy Gutierrez bill. And then the idea was that we were going to try to meld these two bills to come to a bipartisan proposal that in theory would then kind of unite behind these issues and move this conversation forward. And so, um, you know, one of the big, one of the big mysteries isn't the right word, but unspoken truths about immigration reform is while there is a lot of division on the Republican side of the aisle about immigration reform, there's a ton of division on the Democratic side of the aisle about immigration reform. And they, mm-hmm. and it's been always easy because the Republicans have been so vocal and so out there and so blatant about their disagreements and whether it's, you know, amnesty, border security, temporary workers, stealing our jobs, whatever the conversation is, Democrats have been kind of able to fade into the background and not have to deal with the idea that they have huge divisions within their own ranks on legalization, temporary workers, uh, unionization, you know, how, like, do we want workers, like, legalized or not? Will they undermine wages? Will they grow wages? And 
So I think that what we're looking at, and this is skipping over a lot of history, but I think what I'm looking forward to see, not forward to seeing, but what I'm interested to see, and I think that we saw a hint of this in the Biden administration proposal, is how to square those two circles, right? So, yeah. you know, you notice in the latest Biden proposal, there's nothing on temporary workers. There's no future flow at all. There's no dealing with how we got here as far as we have you know, you can say 12 to 20 million people here undocumented. There's no dealing with the pull factors. And the pull factors are incredibly important because the reason that we have this many people here who are undocumented is if you are a low-skilled worker from someplace like Mexico, unless you marry a citizen or your immediate family member of U.S. citizen, you have no way of coming into this country. People say all the time, come legally, do it the legal way. There are no routes for you to come into the U.S. and be a citizen and do it through the right routes if if you fall within those categories. And until we address what those how to deal with the people that are in those categories, we're never going to solve this problem. And not only you know Republicans have their issues, but Democrats have also figured not figured out how to deal with those issues. And so the 2005-2006 bills, we can talk about how like. Harry Reid pulled the bill from the floor because he wanted the campaign issue for the 2006 election. And we could talk about then like in 2007 and the, and the issues around that election and like how Obama offered an amendment that undermined the deal and fundamentally undermined the agreement on that. And like, it's all comes down. Everybody always talks about Republican politics in there, but there's so many complicated Democrat politics in there too. And then you get to 2013. And by the time we get to 2013, there are so many interest groups in this mix that the bill is so incredibly complicated that after Obamacare and the like, here are my 2,000 page, you know, here are my 2,000 pages. Have you read these pages? There was never going to be a bill that was that complicated that was ever going to pass both chambers of right. commerce again. And I would also contend not a great deal. I admire the people that negotiated it, but the, it was so overly complicated. There was no way that any administrator was going to be able to figure out how to implement that bill into law. Yeah. And then you take that, you know, the bill passes the Senate. Oh, well, and good. And you drop it in the laps of the House. And John Boehner is like, too complicated. I can't even support this deal. I need to, like, we're going to do this in a piecemeal fashion. This is like, we need to just get back to basics on this. And then you had all of these things happening at once, which is, you know, rush of kids at the border. You have Eric Cantor losing his race. You have Obama introducing DACA. You have all of these things that are out of John Boehner's control that come all like, and then implode all at once to blow this whole conversation up. And yeah. now- can I, can I ask you a question? <laughs> Yeah, please. Um, so first question is, do you think there is consensus that immigration, or even in America, because I'm not sure it is the case anymore, but do you think Americans believe and would support immigration as a concept is a positive for America at this point? I, and when I say immigration, no. I don't mean illegal immigration. I mean the concept of, you know, a smart Russian uh, computer scientist co immigrates to America to work for Microsoft. You know, like um, a... No, yeah. no, so I you, don't. And that's that's huge, right? And, but, I, but 
But yeah, and I totally agree. And I don't think that's a partisan issue. I actually think that this is like- Oh, I just said America. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So like, you know, as much as they say like politics isn't a spectrum, it's a sphere. This is like immigration is like the most like encapsulating of that issue, which is like the extremes of both party come that together. That and anti-Semitism. They meet. Anti-Semitism meets in the that same point. <laughs> I mean, they go Sorry, in hand kind of, right? <laughs> I thought you were saying what I was saying. No. Anti-Semitic. I was like, I am? I'm sorry. No. Get out. I was like, Jesus, Al. He's up, man. No, I'm saying it's no, a similar I'm... concept where they meet at the hard right and hard left. Right. And so it's it's just, you know, it's like you've got this populist movement within the Republican Party and you this pro-union labor movement within the Democratic Party. And that's, and that's the issue here. And unfortunately, you know, as much as our politics used to be a bell, and now we're like ending up as what do you ever you call like a, an M? I don't know, but like the more that <laughs> more that the parties move out to those extremes, the more that people agree on that. And I think that's yeah. the thing that you know when you talk to people who are pro immigration reform, that's the thing that they keep coming back to. And George Bush was just on, you know, he's mm-hmm. he's um, shopping around a new book right now, which is the paintings of immigrant faces and talking about the importance of the immigration, the immigrant to the American society. And that's one of his big points is like look at how much they do and as yeah. much as and this is one of the things i realized when i was at the bipartisan policy center as much as we like pushed out economic data on like these are and peter this is a good example your your dad like as much as we push out information about what immigrants do for this country yeah. there's this like locked in view of folks of what their personal experience is though yeah. they will always say this is my experience except for that person over there that person's a you know good immigrant which we can talk about racism in that but we can talk about like everybody has like except for my nanny or like my whatever those people are okay but those other people Mm -hmm. are taking jobs from us yeah and there's just no amount of data that we can it seems like there's no amount of data we can put in front of people that are going to dissuade them of that opinion and that's how this is again we can talk about like we're dealing we're dealing in a world like a post-fact world. Yes. We can talk about that in a million yeah. different ways, but this is one of the this is one of the cases of that. That it's the one of the things that my you know I talked with my dad uh, my when my dad was alive we talked about this issue a lot just the way he came to the United States and and how he did it and I mean obviously that was a much different time that was the early 1960s, um, but um, and the, you know the American dream was something that I would say a lot more easily attainable back then than it probably is now, but. Um, the thing that always pe- people would throw in my face is, you know, they're taking the jobs that like, you know, a 17 year old is going to, is going to want to do, you know, that summer job. And I was like, 17 year olds are not applying for jobs at McDonald's. They're not applying to be dishwashers in restaurants. They don't do that. We've moved on the, the generation, at least at the time when I had this conversation that is beneath them. They've believed that is beneath them. And so who else is going to do this job? Who is going to go change linens in a hotel? Who is going to be a housekeeper? You know, it, it just it drives me nuts. And, you know, I always say we're, it's not like we've got a file cabinet of like n- names and numbers or resumes for 17 year olds who want to wash dishes for, you know, eight for an eight hour shift at a restaurant. So, I mean, I always I, it's the one thing that I always had to push back on that. That's just not how it works in reality. The, the, the other to follow up what you just said, the other and that relates to my second question is, Becky, I think most people when they think of an immigration discussion, they immediately go to the undocumented or illegal immigrants. Um, Mm -hmm. And those are the types of people that are going to be filling the jobs that you're talking about, Peter. Um, 
you know, the, the hotel linen uh, service, the dishwasher at a restaurant. And I just wonder if we can um, kind of like, I don't know, part those issues or somehow compartment them mm-hmm. and say illegal immigration is a huge thing that we need to solve. You know, amnesty, is that something we want to discuss? Or like, are we even in a, we're not even in a position with defin- definitionally where we can like have the right conversation in my opinion. I don't know. But. Yeah, I, I think that's, a, I mean, I think that's a good point. I do also think that there are, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's an intellectual quagmire to me that we, you know, we're, in some, in some cases we have the same people who are saying like, America is the greatest country on earth and we should be a symbol for democracy and economy and all of those things that everybody in the world should aspire to. But then at the same time, they're saying, but only those of us who are here should have those opportunities. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. it's, so it's, I, the, the issue of the worker is inherent in all of this. And, you know, George Bush was famous for saying like, look, if I lived in a third world country and they told me that my only way to provide for my family was to sneak into the United States illegally, I would do that 10 times out of 10. I would do that. hundred percent. I would do yeah. that. And so, and it goes back to this issue that I said earlier, which is that like, again, like what is, you know, how do you come to this country legally? And again, we're talking about the, uh, to focus on the undocumented population for a minute, like, you know, if you think about the undocumented population, it tends to be more in your mind, low skilled workers that are coming from this third world countries who don't have the opportunity, who have no legal way, no Mm -hmm. legal way, unless, unless they marry or are a relative, no legal way of coming into this country. But, you know, when we were talking about this issue in 2006 and 2007, one of the reasons that Ted Kennedy got involved in this is that there were over a million undocumented Irish in the country at that moment. And, you know, when people think about the undocumented population, they don't necessarily think about that. But you think of, you know, 40%, and again, these are maybe data statistics, but 40% of the undocumented population in the United States are visa overstayers. They're not people who snuck across the border. They're people who came here on legal Mm -hmm. visas and stayed. Mm -hmm. And so those aren't necessarily people who, you know, again, this is, again, I would argue based on racism, but not necessarily like people like sneaking across the border to come and steal our jobs, quote unquote, but people who have come here and their family is here and they have no legal way of staying. And so they want to stay and they want to be with their families. And those are the types of things that, you know, promoting family unity and those types of things that I would argue are part of American tradition and American values, but our current immigration system doesn't allow and doesn't promote the ability to do. Oh, if we can't even agree that 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 immigration is a, a net positive for like we were like all these years we were just allowing immigrants to just kind of come into the country as a detriment to the US. Like that's insane. Like we we do this to the benefit of ourselves, you know, America is an ideal, right? It's like, give us your poor, your, your, you know, um, and you, if you want to come here and work hard and um, provide for yourself, then you have a chance to succeed here. It's not a place, you know, it's, it's an ideal. And by like what you said, like this, it's not just for people who are here. It's, for people who want to 
um, abide by sort of the American way and of life and ideals. And, and when they come here and give us their all and give us their ideas and give us their perspectives from growing up in other countries, and um, it makes us a richer, more dynamic society. And it's always been about improving ourselves, you know, in, in search of a more perfect union. Um, and, you know, if we can't even agree that immigration is a net positive, like to me, it just seems like the goal is getting further and further away. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I do think that there's, I think that the, you know, the, the elephant in the room or whatever you want to call it is this, is the fear of loss or this fear of identity that I think yeah. that, you know, in generations before us, was less I don't I don't want to say it's less acute because I obviously wasn't alive in the 50s the 30s 40s and 50s but I do think that there's that we're seeing that a lot of society today is that it's not seen that this you know that this new influx of immigrants are in that you know that learning about these other cultures and, and appreciating them there's a theme of that takes away from what it means to be American. And for me, what it means to be American is all of those things, right? I grew up in Arizona, you know, around my house, we have, you know, all of these things that speak to the, the, the Mexican culture that I grew up with, not that I am Mexican, but that was part of my, you know, like I grew up in Arizona, that was part of my inherent culture growing up. But I know that there are other people that would say that that takes away from what they think it means to quote unquote be American. And, and, and you see this, you know, we saw this even back, you know, Peter, your original question, like we're talking back in 2003, 2004, before we even got to the McCain Kennedy bills, you know, we had this Colby Flake McCain bill and I worked with Jim Colby at the time as the congressman from Southern Arizona who had the Gabby Gifford seat before she had it. And it was, you know, he introduced this immigration reform bill that dealt with like border security immigration reform and the overwhelming, okay, I shouldn't say that the vocal response we get, which I do think (laughs) there's a difference between what your vocal response is and the actual opinion of this, of the constituency was, it was, they would say it was like anger and, you know, um, nativism. They wouldn't say nativism, nativism. Um, but this, you know, populist mentality. But what it really came through as was fear. Uh, my school is not like my child's school is not looking like, like what it used to. My, uh, my church is not looking like what it used to. Yeah. My grocery store is not looking like what it used to. And so it really wasn't about, it was about protecting the view of themselves and the view of the community that they had become comfortable with. And it was getting, you know, addressing the issue of getting them outside of their own comfort and whether or not folks would be willing to do that. And that was, that was an early lesson in my early career. And those, you know, I was in my early to mid twenties when I was witnessing this. And that was really kind of a revelation to me that had never I, I, I had not seen up until that point because I was also an Air Force brat who had moved from like Texas to England to Germany to Tucson. And that was kind of a new, a new idea for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry. I'm talking too much, but I have lots no. of feelings on this. If you can't tell. <laughs> well, it leads, it leads to kind of where we are in the last, you know, five years now. So, you know, other than DACA, which, you know, whether that was a political decision or if that was whatever that was under the Obama administration, it's being, you know, 
him being the deporter in chief, as they say, um, and then having DACA there. Then we moved into the focus being whether or not there was actually a crisis at the border, kids showing up, detention centers, all this stuff. So is there, like I have this in our notes, is there, has there been, or has there been a crisis at the border in the recent years, in your opinion? Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. Absolutely. I mean, so when we were, again, when we were talking about immigration reform in 2006, 2007, even 2013, there was a whole conversation about like, if you talk about legalization, we're suddenly going to have a flood at the border. And we're like, ah, okay, okay, sure. Like, that's what they say, but sure. Um, and then we suddenly in, you know, in, in 2012 and 2013, Obama announced the DACA programs. And then suddenly this isn't political. This is like what we were hearing on the ground was that coyotes were putting out advertisements in Central America that said, under the new Obama program, if your children get to the U.S., they become citizens. Yeah. And like coyotes are deplorable people and they will use every opportunity to try to get people to pay them to bring them across the border. And while that obviously wasn't true, it was founded enough in truth that people would believe it. Yeah. And so part of the, you know, when we were trying to get immigration reform done in, uh, I guess it would have been 2013, early 2014, you know, and then suddenly in the summer of 2014, we saw all of these kids. It was, it was a ton of youth rushing to the border. It really undermined our argument around legalization because it was like, oh, unfortunately, like, oh shit, this is happening. <laughs> so for lack of a better phrase, like what they said was happening would come true. And we didn't really have a good answer to that. And there are laws are not in a great position to be dealing with situations like that either dealing with minors dealing with minors that are other than mexicans like it's a very very complicated system at the border and i mean i went (coughs) excuse me i went and toured the border and i mean a lot but i remember in the i guess it would have been the spring of 2015 um when we defunded the department of homeland security you're gonna have to check my stats on that and we were trying to get the the um, department back up and running. We went and did some tours of the border with Mike McCall and the Homeland Security Committee and their members. And we were 100% walking through those facilities. And there were 100% cages built with kids inside of it. That is like, we saw them. It was happening. Mm. Like, that's maybe like the one thing that Trump raised in his debates that I agreed with. Like, those cages were built under Obama. Like, that is not a question. Like, we saw them, we saw the kids inside of them. And I don't, but the problem is that our laws are not built to address them. And so we have all of these yeah. issues around like how long, like how quickly, like should you be deporting children? If you should be, how quickly should be you be deporting them? Are the countries ready to to receive them? And then we have internal laws that, that pertain to like who can hold children, who can, yeah. you know, you've got HHS facilities and then, outside of HHS facilities, it's basically Catholic charities. This is also a dirty little secret. Like it's basically Mm -hmm. religious organizations. So Catholic charities and the Lutherans who are willing to take these children in. And so I don't, I mean, I'll be honest, like, I don't, I don't blame the Obama administration beyond being, you know, the fact that it was turned into like kind of an insincere, you know, changing of facts when it came to the trump administration except that there because there's no solution to this to this really massive influx at the border 
And then Trump did it. And don't get me wrong. Like there are a lot of other things that Trump did that exacerbated the situation. You can talk about, you know, the camps on the Mexican side of the border and like all of, all of those issues around allowing people to apply for asylum and how that was handled. But like, it's not surprising to me that Biden is back in a situation of having to hold these families and these kids in the situation that they're because the laws have not changed pertaining to how we hold these people. And the other thing that I would say is, you know, as long as you're talking about things like the tech community or like whether you're not talking about like the far left on how, you know, they, they flood money into situations when you're dealing with crisis at the border, but they've also noticed that they are unwilling to give to religious organizations. And the religious organizations are the ones who are actually dealing with the, like actually taking care day to day. And so what we've also seen is that these money floods into organizations that don't have the ability or the capacity to distribute that money. Third party organizations have to come in and then they like six degrees of separation end up giving them to the religious organization. And there's so much money lost along the way, but there's also yeah. like, so I guess that's a long way of saying like every step of the way there's politics involved in all of this. And so as much as people say like, we just want to, we just want to deal with the children. We just want to protect the children. There's hypocrisy at every level. <laughs> and until, until we figure out and until we adjust our laws, on both sides, again, on the restrictionist and on the on the you know what, lack of a better phrase like welcoming side, there's not a good solution, and it. But long way of saying the answer to your question is yes. There's a crisis. There's been a crisis every summer for a lot of summers. This one is really bad, and the numbers are off the chart. And so to say that that to say that this is like a political message, it's just not true. This is this yeah. is this is a crisis, but it is built off of a rhythm of crises that have been building up until this point. It's it's funny you mentioned the 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 coyotes and the DACA message, you know, back in 2013, because you know, didn't something pretty similar happen with when as soon as Biden got elected, there was those same type of messages coming from coyotes, like, oh, Biden's the new president now, the border's going to be open, let's go, kind of thing. Um, but- yeah, hundred percent. Like- that's that's a real thing. I mean, it's and that's not a value judgment. That's a like we have these really awful people taking advantage right. of people yeah. who are in bad circumstances, and that's that's you know it's not. I don't blame the Biden administration for that. The only point that I blame the Biden administration for is pretending that that's not happening, and it is happening, and we just have to accept that. But like, we have bad people taking advantage of people who are in really bad situations. Yeah. And so, do you think at the end of the day, when it came to who can, who gets the benefit of the doubt versus who doesn't? And I, I, I think, and you tell me if you agree with me, that Trump didn't get any benefit of the doubt when it came to immigration because of his rhetoric during the 2016 campaign, you know, some of the awful things. Uh, did, he froze. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm hearing yeah. you. Are you hearing I hear me? you. <laughs> oh, maybe it's not us. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Okay. Let me yeah. No, it's not us. Oh, he, he, he dropped. dropped. He's recording. So. There you are. Oh, was, uh, back? Back? what happened? What was the last thing you heard? I don't know. Uh, you said of the doubt um, for the tr- campaign rhetoric. Oh, okay. All right. So what I was saying, and agree. tell me if you agree with me or not. The reason why Trump never, I mean, not that he should have gotten the benefit, out, but the reason why I think Biden is looking a little bit better now than the way Trump did is because of Trump's rhetoric in the 2016 election the awful things that he said about immigrants, you know, exaggerated or not, and then hiring 
staff that got to be high profile, like Stephen Miller, who I've always hated, um, even when he worked when he worked for as a staff assistant for Jeff Sessions in the Senate, um, only made it worse. And I know Biden seems and always will come off as more compassionate than Trump. I mean, you know, anything comes off as he more is. compassionate than Trump, but <laughs> because he is. But um, how do you how do how does one have a credible message on? I guess my point, my long way of me asking, how does somebody, a president or a policy person or otherwise, have a credible message on immigration? What what does it really take to show compassion to really, but also be effective in trying to tamper down the build the wall crowd? You know, I remember working for the Mint's office. We got cinder blocks mailed to us by the build the wall crowds in, in 2007. Um, you know, how do you get them? Is there a way to find a messenger like that? Well, now, y- y- yes, but I'm also going to go to, I'm, I'm now going to get a little bit into the like crazy Republican mentality, but I think there's a question of like, how effective is it to me- to message on that and how, and how much is the media willing to portray that message to their audiences so if you you know like if you look at the 20 the 2008 campaign like if it it, i 100% believe that john mccain had been elected in 2008 immigration reform would have been the first thing that he did in the first 100 days i have zero doubt about that but the way that the, the the media talked about the 2008 election was like John McCain has abandoned his principles. He's yeah. and you know, and and in reality, it was a lot of the immigrant advocate groups that abandoned him. I mean, like you know, I remember sitting, I remember sitting in conference rooms with these folks that he for sure had put his career on the line for suddenly because of their own personal politics, walking away from him and from his immigration proposals even though i'd like to say that like again obama offered amendments during the 2006 debate that would have broken the bill so it's it's just you know you have to separate like there there are there are personal politics and there are um anyway we can talk about 2008 there are two there are personal politics and (laughs) practical politics but I would say that if you're talking about somebody who actually was thoughtful and messaged well in immigration, you'd look at John McCain, you'd look at Ronald Reagan, you know, everybody has feelings about Ronald Reagan, but, you know, shining city on the hill. Um, And then, um, but then I also feel like there are a lot of folks, you know, whether it be Obama, and I would actually say Obama folks would say that he didn't get enough credit in the mainstream media for the amount of work that he actually did to secure the border. He mostly got beat up on like border yeah. and chief stuff. Right. Yeah. But like generally people go to the simplest explanation that like the, what gets translated out is the simplest explanation, the simplest way to message this because these issues are super mm-hmm. complicated. Yeah. And so, you know, whether or not be, you know, whether it be that, you know, Republicans can't figure out a way to be both like pro business which we can talk about like whether or not Republicans are even pro business anymore, but can be pro business and pro border security. And we can talk about people on the left being like pro legalization and pro labor. We're not even dealing in a world that is like that thoughtful right right now. Right. Like right now it's like Republicans are like secure the border and the Democrats are like Republicans are racist. And it's just, I mean, so it's, and it's all dealing in. And I remember, you know, you know, 
sorry, Peter, I'm going to rag on one of your old bosses for a minute. But like, <laughs> I remember when Jim DeMint came into office and he said, I'd rather have, you know, 30 some true conservatives oh, yeah. than the majority of the Senate. Which is wackadoo, right? Like, yeah. which is crazy because then you like don't get anything done in your agenda. But it was that at the same time as me, like the twenty-four hour news cycle perked up, and suddenly we are talking in, you know, five-word sentences yeah. that everybody can understand, yep. and nobody is thinking thoughtfully about this issue. And it was, you know, we we're talking about, you know, we were talking with Ted Kennedy and McCain and Mar you know Mel Martinez, and we were having a conversation or messaging on this. And somebody said something like, you know, how do you answer the question that this is just like a free ride? And they said, it's not a free ride because you have to pay taxes and you have to like go through all these hoops. And they said, but the other side says it's amnesty and they did it in two words and you've now had to do it in 20. Yeah. And people have already lost their interest. When you're getting into 20 words, they're bored and they've already started tuning out. And as long as we're like in that vein, I don't, I don't know how, I don't know how we do it. I don't know how we do it. And I think, I think there are some folks that are starting to think about how we do it. But I also think that we have, frankly, like it's been so long since we've done a like thoughtful immigration debate on the Hill. Like where is the staff yeah. to support yeah. that? And where are the people who are digging in on these issues? And where are the people that are being... Yeah, you know, we we've talked for years about the fact that Republicans don't hire immigration staff. I know that I I know that I stumbled into it unintentionally, and I know that a lot of my fellow Republican staff did too. Like, mm -hmm. we are not hiring Republican staffers to work on immigration unless you're hiring them to be hardline anti-immigrant people. Yeah. And on the Democrat side, like they they had an influx of staffers coming in post 1996 to kind of like deal with and address those laws but they also haven't made a movement to hire immigration staff since then. So you also kind of have a brain drain on the Hill of th people being thoughtful about this. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, basically it's down to, if you're a Democrat, you're for open borders. And if you're uh, a Republican, you're racist. Like that's the immigration debate at yeah. this point, which when I hear you talk about like um, legislation and sort of, the two bills in, in the early 2000s. I'm like, we are so far light years away from even like that level of thoughtfulness. And, you know, people seem to be more interested in hiring someone to um, write their Twitter account to uh, own 100%. the libs or, you know, vice versa um, every day than, than hire someone who's going to be thoughtful about you know, building bridges and building relationships and having conversations about how to, to, to develop policy or legislation. Um, and uh, yeah, it just seems like it's, it's the messaging is, you know, they get their um, updates from the polling and the consultants that say this, this doesn't message well, this is just a, a, a losing issue for you. Don't even touch it. Um, so, you know, and I kind of want to pull it back just a, a bit because I, I raised it at the beginning with this messaging and this negotiation, like with immigration, it doesn't sound like we're, I mean, no one's even talking about pushing immigration at the moment. Am I correct? Like there's not, it's not even, at least, at least on the, as far as like a actual bipartisan approach, it's nothing like the police reform stuff that Tim Scott's doing or anything that, or even infrastructure at this point. And are you aware well, of, you know, there's, 
some. Yeah, I mean, there's that, there's the Graham Durbin DACA bill, or sorry, Dreamers bill that is floating around out there. And obviously the House just passed their, um, there was a Dream bill and a Farm Workers bill that passed the House a couple of weeks ago. Um, but there was also a, there's a story in Politico that popped last night, and I'm forgetting what it was called, but um about how there's like a, a very plugged in Democratic pollster who's basically telling Democrats to like not talk about immigration. <laughs> it's just such an unpopular issue right now. And I do think that obviously the pandemic has a huge impact on that, right? Like we, you know, like you talk about tech companies trying to hire H1Bs or saying things like, you know, Peter, we were talking about earlier, like people not wanting to work in restaurants and like being talked about the yeah. complicated issues around the unemployment benefits and all of those things but when you have this like super high unemployment in the u.s there's just a discomfort and a like yeah. not a lot of pressure beyond yeah. maybe the advocate community pushing on the undocumented population but my question is that in the next few years like we've always tried to bring everybody along together but are we finally going to see a concerted effort to just deal with the DACA community or just deal with the dreamers. Like it's always been like, okay, they're a little sympathetic. So they're going to like drag this package along with them. But I do think that because this has been going on for literally almost 20 years now, actually 20 years now, at some point we're going to have to get serious. I would say the Democrats are going to have to get serious about moving this stuff in a piecemeal fashion. Do we do it? Do we do a fix for the dreamers? Do we do a fix for the nurses? Nurses is a big issue. Are we going to do a fix for the farm workers? Are we going to do a, you know, fix for the, the, the dairy workers? Are we going to do a fix for the summer? Like, you know, people who work at the Catskills, you know, like those types of things we've tried to, in the last few years, try to like glom them all together and say like, this is our big immigration fix, but we've been so unsuccessful that at some point, somebody has to face the reality that like a piece is better than nothing. And maybe it's time to do the piece. The window for accomplishing so, legislation though, is like so small. It's basically the first yeah. hundred days of a new administration. hundred <laughs> well, percent. Yeah. So it's like, you want to try to get as much as you can, but maybe they just need to be less ambitious. Like you said. <laughs> maybe they just need to give up. No, <laughs> being flipped, but yeah. But what worries me a lot, as speaking as somebody who hopes to be a Republican again one day, um, there's a huge missed opportunity here for Republicans. I, I, I think that Trump, to some extent, and even George W. Bush did this too, that there is a slice, a good-sized slice of the of the Latino and Hispanic vote that Republicans can get if they were to figure out a cohesive message specifically around this issue and also tying that in with jobs, opportunity, um, mm-hmm. you know, prosperity, all those great buzzwords that we're, we've become accustomed to over the years. But it's going to get taken away if they don't figure out how do 100%. they message it, how do they message it, do it in a way that doesn't get them called racist every single time they open their mouths yeah. and not let people like the squad or, you know, Pelosi or, or the Democrats in general take it away from them because that's the big thing we always get you know republicans always get painted as you don't want this to happen because of the next census you're going to lose another congressional district and the i hate i hate hearing that the demographics are working against you you're shrinking because of this i don't think that's true 
in, in, a, in sort of the macro sense. But I, I mean, it is if they don't get if Republicans don't finally decide how they want to handle it. Yeah. So there there are a lot of misconceptions about what is the Hispanic and or Latino vote and how yeah. they view the world. Right. So um, we saw this in the last 2016 election and you saw like, you know, you've got the Cuban population in Florida, which is yeah. very different than the Central American and Mexican population in the West. Right. And how they come down on these issues. And, and we talk about very broadly hispanics latinos those are very two like they fundamentally come from different places but they are two very different populations of people and so cubans tend to be uh, not to like woman explain to your podcast but like cubans <laughs> tend to be like Please. much more conservative much more republican they come from an anti they come from communist countries they come from being oppressed by communist countries and they're much more in line with the republican views of how to view communism and then you have kind of the central american mexican population that's mostly in the southwest and it comes up from you know being um not everybody but a good portion of them tend to be kind of low school workers agricultural workers they get you know, they're part of the agricultural unions, they come up through, you know, ha- uh, those types of jobs that are historically unionized and, and more populist. And so to talk about these populations as the same people is like, I don't even know how to compare it, talking about two totally opposite yeah. ideas. And yet we still in this country try to lump them in as yeah. like, Hispanic. Which like yeah. even the even the Central Americans would bristle at being called Hispanic, yeah. right? They're they're Latino, and so so the, so I think that I think that was one of the things we talked about at my company after the election. I was like trying to figure out how to talk about the election is to definitely not lump these two categories of people as the same people. So I think that that is the that is the first place to start. Second place to think about this is I hundred percent agree with you, Peter. That like if you look at the population that's coming up from Central America and Mexico, they tend to be, you know, heavily Catholic, yep. uh, heavily family oriented. You can talk about, you know, uh, pro-life issues, like socially conservative. And you would think that just, you know, superficially looking at their demographic, those should be Republican voters, yeah. except they think Republicans hate them yep. and they think that Republicans are racist. Yep. And how, and, and you look at a state like Texas that I haven't looked at the, I, I don't know the numbers from the last election, but Romney won only won Texas by something like 900,000 votes. And there were uh, over a million unregistered immigrant voters that identified as Latino. If I remember that correctly, don't correct me if I'm wrong, but that's, and so honestly, if they just, if they just registered the voters in Texas that you would suspect would identify Democrat, we could lose Texas, which is insane. If you think about it, right? Like Texas is supposed to be the Republican stronghold, but we are losing these numbers in such Arizona, Arizona, this last election, nuts. Arizona was a state that Republicans were never supposed to lose. It's supposed to be a Republican stronghold, but there's a huge portion of the population that is growing up thinking that Republicans hate them, yeah. and and that that they are and and I can't blame them. 
don't, blame don't worry, Trump. Trump's that that audit's going to overturn that and show the truth. So oh, yeah, we'll we'll we'll, we'll realize that it was all a law, a lie. There, there are watermarks. It's fine. <laughs> Boo in out. the paper. I mean, yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, and this is one of the things that John McCain used to say: is like, if we don't get smart, if Republicans don't get smart on immigration we are never going to recover as a party. And mm-hmm. I feel like he said that 10, 15 years ago and the Republican, the party's response has been like, we're not comfortable with that. So we're going to like go to the lowest common denominator and go to like all the people that don't agree with that and just try to solidify this right here, which is not sustainable in the long term. If you look at the demographics of this country. Yeah. I'm getting, I'm getting uh, tired of the, uh, we are the party of the big tent. It's not, we're not, it's not anymore. It's not true. It's we're not, not anymore. True. We're not anymore. And you can, and you can talk to the, you know, and it's not just immigrants, it's LGBTQ community. It's women. Mm. It's a lot of, it's a lot of these, a lot of different communities are not feeling welcomed by the party anymore. And I struggle with that because those are communities that, you know, I would love to welcome in. And I think yeah. historically by, you know, if you look at the policies of the past should be part of the party, I I will say that, like, as a woman, I struggle with the idea that, like, all of my politics should come down to reproductive rights, which I just don't, that those are not my voting issues. It is, it's, I 100% respect the fact that those are other people's issues. And I I find it offensive that both parties boil down what I should care about to reproductive rights. But at the same time, who else is speaking to me as a voter? Like, who else is speaking to the, like, what it is? Like, who else is courting me as a voter on the other issues that I care about? And I think... Anyway, that's we could do a whole second podcast on that. <laughs> We've got a nationals <laughs> podcast. We've got a uh, <laughs> women's ro- voting podcast. All right, we got a lot of offshoot. Yeah. Checking in, did, did so I saw it was two to one. Did the nationals pull it out? No, no, it was no. Fi- that was the final classic Scherzer outing. Uh, he yeah, yeah. two two solo home runs. Did he have like twelve strikeouts too? Probably. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. one run to support him, and it came in the yeah. ninth inning. Was it the bottom of the yeah. night? I, I will say I will say the Nationals offense has come alive in the last weekend, but it was a, it was a tough one. But it's after eleven o'clock here. I feel like maybe it's time for me to, to we, we, we will wrap. We will certainly wrap it up. Yeah. This is this has been awesome. I, I kind of wish we could go on for another hour. To be honest, um, I knew well, this was I'd be, how... I'd be excited to come back. So let me know if there's anything else you want to come back for. This is when fun. when they well, when they start I, negotiating. I, uh, uh, immigration, you can come back. So, I, I knew for sure that this was how tonight was going to go. Honestly, like, I, <laughs> I just, I, it couldn't go any other way with you, Becky. Honestly, this because you're fascinating. Just me ranting at you guys. Yeah. No, great. it's <laughs> the thing I can always count on is even though you're not you're not necessarily in that world right now in your career, but the fact that you still keep yourself immersed in it, like I just I love that about you, and I know that this has always been a very passionate issue for you, and you know, like you said, it's you fell into it, kind of the same way that I fell into healthcare. Like I didn't never intend on doing healthcare, and I fell into it, and that's what I do now for a living. So, um, thank you for being on. Thank you for talking. We'll definitely have you back. I want to talk more about this for sure. It's certainly something you know. I I thought for a while when my dad got sick and and ended up passing away, I was wished I would have, um, sat down and recorded his experiences, um, with coming to the United States, what he went through in, you know, in Greece to get here, 
what he went through when he got here as an immigrant. Was he treated differently? You know, what kind of prejudice or obstacles were placed in front of him and how did he succeed? And I know that that story, it would be way, would probably be way worse now than it was back in the late fifties, early sixties. And that breaks my heart. And it's one of the reasons why I could never have any type of, you know, nostalgia or trust for Donald Trump and the way that he handled this issue and, you know, and other issues, but I'll stop right there on that one. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was really, really great to talk with you all. And I would, yeah, love to come back again. And this is really fun. So just let me know whenever you want me to rant at you again for another hour and a half. So I'm around. (laughs) Well, Hal, what are are you into, man? Oh, well, since we're, we're, we're late here. Um, I'll, I'll be quick. Uh, it's, we've done so many of these episodes now. I, I, God knows I may have even mentioned this before, but I don't think I have. Um, have you, have you ever heard of the podcast? You talking you two to me. (laughs) Mm -mm. That makes no sense. It's, it's done by, um, Adam Scott, the actor and, uh, Oh, I love that. And Adam Scott Ackerman, who is on Comedy Bang Bang. And they were big U2 fans. And they decided they are big U2 fans. And they decided to just go through every U2 album and just talk about it. And it is absurd and funny. And um I and and then they morphed it into an REM podcast afterwards. And then they even did a talking heads one. Um I started with the REM one several years ago. I've got I've recently gone back to listen to the U2 portion of it, which was the first one. It's it dates back to 2014, but it ages really well. Um, and so I am all the way up to the All That You Can't Leave Behind album now. Uh, but it's very enjoyable. I find myself sitting there giggling like a schoolboy as I'm listening to it. So if you're ever interested, I mean, it, if you, it's just a fun podcast to listen to. Um, when you're not listening to ours. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. That's a yeah. good one. Um, Becky, do you want me to go or are you, do you have something? Oh, I'm ready. <laughs> oh, go for it. I'm you ready. Go, and, I'll, and I'll close it out. Okay. So because I've already talked too much, I'm going to, I'm going to take um, the opportunity to give two plugs. <laughs> Done. So I, I will say, um, We've really got into Mayor of Easttown. If you haven't watched it, oh yes, yeah. I am. It's awesome. What is it? Mayor of Mayor of, Mayor of Easttown, Easttown on HBO, okay. and um, SNL did a very rarely uh, really funny uh, sketch about it, which I also highly recommend if you're going to watch it. Um, Kate Winslet. I also. Okay. Yes. I'm in. It's well done. It's a little. It's a little like heavy, like trying to beat you around the head about the fact that it's from Pennsylvania. Like randomly drops a lot of Pennsylvania references that they drink an absurd Coast, amount like, of Rolling Rock on this show, by the way. And Yingling, like they cir- <laughs> circulate between Rolling Rock and Yingling. Do and they say like, Yins? Look at this Wawa. Oh my god. So you gotta watch. You've gotta watch that. You gotta watch the Saturday Night Live sketch. It's like it's and they make fun of their accents, but it's still a good show. Um. Okay, so we've also watched. Uh, I'm actually going to do three. We also watched the f- episodes of um, Ken Burns Hemingway, yeah. which highly recommend. Okay. Hemingway, super interesting character. It's only three episodes. Each episode is two hours, but it's still worth getting through. And then I'm also, if we're talking podcasts, super into The Loaded Goat, which is, I will again give a plug <laughs> to Aaron Talent, which is a podcast about 
uh, the Andy Griffith Show. And so Aaron grew up as a big fan of the Andy Griffith Show, and he's watching it with somebody who's 10 years younger than us, who's watching the Andy Griffith Show for the first time. And the two of them watch through each walk through each episode of the first season and talk about their impressions of the Andy Griffith Show. Huh. And it is surprisingly funny. I can say that because Aaron's not the funny one. Our <laughs> friend Chris, who does it with him, is. But um, it's called The Loaded Goat. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. So those, are my, those are my three things that I'm into right Thank now. Thank you. I'm going to subscribe. It's amazing. Please subscribe. It's it's. They actually have – they're getting like a – people are super into Andy Griffith. <laughs> there are lots of pages. There are pages that are into Andy Griffith, and they're sharing it. So they get a decent number of listeners. So – the Loaded Goat, which is an Andy Griffith reference. So, at some point, you have to tell me how they how they decided that was going to be the premise of their podcast. But we don't we don't have to get into that now. But <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Tune in. All right. You'll love it. I'm we'll in. do. Pete finishes off here. Uh, God, I'm not going to be n- nearly as interesting at all, actually. Um, so I think everybody knows my oldest son Teddy is very much into cars. So um, he's gotten me into. Um, learning about what car I'm going to get next. I'm actually in line for, mm-hmm. I get a work car hanging uh, out in the field. I get a work car. So um, he and I have been doing this thing like together where we're just researching cars. I already know what car I have to get. I have to get the same one that I have now, just a newer model, but it, it hasn't stopped me from spending time with my oldest son and actually researching cars, which is something that he does a lot more than I knew he was doing. Um, if you look at the search history, search history on his iPad, uh, you would just be freaked out by how, in the details and he like reads the specs of the car like it i i don't even know any of this stuff but he at six years old or almost six years old understands all of this crazy shit and i don't and it makes me feel like i'm doing something wrong but anyway so i'm into so what are you leaning towards um i get to i get a choice of one or two cars so i have to i'm gonna probably get what i have now which is a lexus um you know the the lexus suv the rx350 so hard (laughs) i know I was told That's the reason why to I was told Lexus. the reason why we chose that car or why that was one of the options is because it has the best resale value. Um, so it's yeah, whatever. It's a nice car. All right, let's let Becky go. We'll let Becky go. So <laughs> Becky, thank you for joining us. Uh, for those of you listening, follow us at Twitter or at Twitter on Twitter at Bros Politics. Listen to us on Apple Podcast, uh, Spotify, and Amazon. And Howell. Next time, we're going to the casino. (laughs) Go Predators. Bye, everyone.